in August. All the information is on there. It's for our teenagers. Uh, listen, I've been to them. I've sent my children to them as well. You can ask Shelly. Uh, amen. They're good for the teens. They, uh, they, they come back on fire for God, filled the Holy Ghost. Great investment. It's 300 bucks, I believe. So you got time to save. I know Evangelist Brooks going to be doing some things to teen to raise money. So, but if you got any questions, talk to him. He's informed on that. Uh, man, one other thing, going to be taking a trip to Zambia, Africa, next March or April. So if you want to go, uh, it's opened up to the church. Uh, it's about $2,500 personnel. A lot of money, I know. But it uh, gives you a whole year to save. If you want to go, it'd be, listen, it's a trip of lifetime. I spent eight years in Africa. We're going to Central Africa, Zambia. Nothing like it. You, it'd be once-in-a-lifetime experience for you. But So if you want to go, uh, let me know. There's still time you can think about. It. Let me know in uh, time, in the next few months anyway. That way we begin to make arrangements for that. Jonah chapter 1, if you've got your Bibles. Jonah chapter 1. Amen. You know, Winston Churchill received a letter one day from a nine-year-old girl that, that the letter simply read to the greatest man in the world. So they said when Winston Churchill, this is the later years in his life, he read that he kind of just smiled and chuckled a little bit. You know, uh, Churchill, Winston Churchill did lead Europe to, uh, you know, in, in some pretty grievous times during World War II and even World War I for some time. But that's not why this, this little girl wrote the letter and said, you're the greatest man in the world. Winston Churchill grew up in a very hateful, or with a very hateful and a bitter and abusive father. You're nothing. I hate you. I want nothing to do with you. were common words that Winston Churchill heard from his father. But what made this nine-year-old write the letter to, uh, to the greatest man in the world was how Winston Churchill treated his father. It's just simply one word with benevolence. Although his father deserved judgment, Winston Churchill gave love, compassion, and forgiveness to his father. And that so touched this young girl. Uh, she knew a little bit about him. She's seen a little bit. Even his own son, I believe his, his name is Rudolph. He's writing of his grandfather's relationship to his son, which was Winston Churchill. He said, I couldn't believe the distance that his father had between him and Winston and the disdain and just, uh, especially in the later years, uh, uh, his father had uh, uh, just uh, issues, losing his mind, different things. And, but the fact is, Winston Churchill served his father's love, compassion, and forgiveness. We're going to read in the book of Jonah today. Uh, Nineveh is wicked, a cruel city filled with violence and uncleanness. But instead of God's judgment, he shows mercy. Jonah chapter 1, we'll start verse 1. It said, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amida, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it. For the wickedness has come up before me, but Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Father, I'm asking you this morning, God, give us wisdom. God, give us a heart of mercy and compassion and love, God. We would operate the same as you do. God, give us your heart this morning. Give us dominion in life and all God's people to say, amen. I titled this Mercy for Judgment, Mercy for Judgment. Let's look at mercy this morning. 
One thing that we see all through Scripture is God's mercy. Mercy, uh, by definition, means a, a demonstration of compassion and forgiveness. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned. And through their sin came evil, uncleanness, uh, murder, rebellion, all entered into the world. But God showed mercy. The Bible said he killed two animals, covered their nakedness, uh, and gave them another chance in life. Don't you thank God that he didn't give us what we deserve? He's a God of mercy and compassion. Moses killed an Egyptian and runs to uh, 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 another country. God meets with him at a burning bush on the backside of a desert and restored calling and destiny to his life. Rahab, a prostitute, repents and finds herself in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Hezekiah uh, is going to die. He prays and God gives him 15 more years. Peter uh, falls and he's restored. Remember the story? Jesus uh, has got some fish on some coals and he calls it these men in, he restores Peter's life, but the scriptures show us of God's mercy. Matthew 9, 36, when Jesus saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Paul says in Ephesians 2, for by grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith as not of yourself, but as the gift of God. So my point is this morning, God's a merciful God. He's full of mercy this morning. So now that we understand God's mercy a little bit more, we can see why Jonah was sent to Nineveh. We can see why God said, I'm going to send a man to preach to them. God doesn't want to destroy life, but he wants to save. Even when they're vile, corrupt, wicked, as Nineveh was, uh, God said, I want to save them and not destroy them. God loves people. That's why God sent somebody to talk to you and I. In our text, uh, God tells Jonah, rise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for the wickedness has come up before me. Verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. The difficulty is getting us, you and I, to think and feel like God. Jonah didn't feel like God here. He didn't feel like, he didn't feel what God felt. God wanted to show compassion. Jonah didn't want anything to do with it. See, Nineveh was very wicked. It was a Caesarean, a Caesarean empire. They worshipped the mother god called Nina. They were sworn enemies of Israel. Some scholars believe that at least five of Jonah's brothers were killed by the Ninevites. So we can kind of see why uh, Jonah, uh, he's saying, well, God, them? You want me to go preach to them? And he's got the history of wars and all the destruction that Nineveh's brought on Israel and even his own family. He couldn't get his mind around God, show them mercy? You know, every once in a while, we need a reminder of how bad we were before salvation. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul does this. Paul's reminding the Corinthians about the mercy of God shown them. It says, so, uh, some of you were fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, drunkards, extortioners, but you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. 
Listen, did you find yourself in there somewhere? Because listen, every one of us before salvation, we had a history. We had a sin history, vile history. If we put your life on the screen, you would be embarrassed. We would be ashamed, embarrassed, uh, the things we trafficked in. But there has to be reminders sometimes. Uh, if we can't, we can get self-righteous pretty quick. John 8, with the account of some so-called believers that have no compassion or forgiveness. They caught a woman in the very act of adultery, as vile and righteous as this is. The Pharisees have no love. They probably dragged her by the hair, shamed her in public, uh, and threw her at the feet of Jesus naked. That's probably how it went down. Because they have no love, no compassion. They want Jesus to bring judgment. Let's pick it up in verse 2, chapter 8 of John. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple. And all the people came to him and sat down and, and, and sat down and he taught them. Verse 3. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Now Moses and the law commands us that we should stone her, but what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, and thus he did not hear, as though he did not hear, verse 7. And when they continued asking him, he raised up and said uh, to them, who, who is without sin, let him throw the first stone. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, uh, being convicted of their, by their conscience, went off one by one, beginning to the oldest even to the least. And Jesus was left alone, the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one. Lord, Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. My theory is this. They bring her to Jesus. Uh, you know, they, they're making their case. She's unclean. She's caught in the very act. And, you know, Jesus is uh, bending down, writing on the ground. When, you know, it's like you and I, we bring something serious to somebody. This is a serious offense. And, and we're explaining our case to them. We're expecting that the judgment, the gavel to go down, judgment to fall. Uh, and and you, sit, you all of a sudden you stoop down the ground and start writing. Uh, you're going to look over their shoulder, aren't you? What are they writing? This is a serious case. And they stoop down uh, and they're writing on the ground. What are they writing? I'm sure that's what they were doing to Jesus. He stooped down on the ground. He's writing. Uh, Jesus is probably writing stuff like this. Uh, uh, John's idolatry. Sam lying. Joseph cheating on his taxes. And, and, and they're seeing that. The name and their sin, and the Bible said convicted by their own conscience, they turned around and left. That's just my theory. You know, after Jonah is thrown overboard into the stormy sea, and after spending three days in the belly of a great fish, and told darkness and seaweed wrapped around his neck, you read the account, uh, it's, it's pretty graphic. Seaweed, uh, seaweed wrapped around his neck, he finally gets some compassion. He finally repents, and God commands the, uh, you know, the great fish to spit Jonah up. He's on the seashore now, and he, you know, you can imagine that experience. But he got some compassion now. Chapter three, verse one: 
Now the word of the Lord came to John the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach uh, to it the message I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the words the Lord had spoken. Let me ask you, what's it going to take for you and I to have compassion on the undeserved? Because if we're not careful, we can look at them and say, they don't deserve it. They're an adulterer, they're liars, they're scammers. And we can add all kinds of things that because of that we can get in our heart. They don't deserve it. I'm not going to talk to them. I'm not going to tell them anything. You know, the message hadn't changed. Jesus says to all of us, John 4, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they are white and ready to harvest. Jesus actually says, leave no stone unturned. Uh, Luke 14, then the master said, go to the highways and the hedges, compelled them to come in that my house may be filled. Jesus said, take every effort, take every opportunity to get the word of God out to try to convert someone, to get somebody saved. God loves to show compassion. Let's look secondly at Nineveh's response to the word of God. To Jonah's surprise, Nineveh heard and responded to the word of God like none of us has ever seen. He preached an eight-word sermon over and over, and the whole city responded. Look at verse 3. Now, Nineveh was exceedingly a great city, a three-day journey in extent, and Jonah began to enter the city on the first day walked. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's his sermon. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth, from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to uh, the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and set in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh, by the degree of the king and the nobles, saying, Let every man and beast, herd and flock, taste nothing. Do not let them eat nor drink water. Let man, or, uh, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hand. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger? so that we may not perish. And God saw their work, that they turned away from their evil ways, and God relented from the disaster which he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now think about that response. The greatest to the least, these hardcore sinners, vile, unclean, violent uh, men and women, at an eight-word sermon, uh, they hear the word of God, they get convicted, and I mean, from the king, you read about these kings, and especially in an ungodly setting like that, uh, I mean, they to, to repent, that's a big deal. They repent. Uh, he puts out a degree, listen, we're going to fast, go on a three-day fast. Maybe we can change God's mind. We can only imagine the revival that broke out here. I mean, think about it. King is saved, the nobles, everybody. Uh, repents, turns to the Lord, turns from their wicked ways. Uh, they're going, we can only imagine the revival in Nineveh. If you follow the history of Nineveh, for 200 years the word of God was there. For 200 years from that one response here, the word of God goes in, people repent. Now for 200 years, uh, I'm not saying it was all revival, but for 200 years the word of God 
did live. It wasn't until the book of Nahum, uh, 200 years later, that, jo- or that Nineveh was actually destroyed. But, but think about that. The Word of God, eight words, think how powerful your witness is. Think how powerful the Word of God is when you simply obey God, just, hey, God loves you, He cares about you, God's got a plan for your life. That is powerful. And so powerful, it turned to king, his nobles, and all the, I mean, even the animals. Telling your dog, you ain't eating nothing or drinking nothing. Until when I start doing it again. You know, people are more ready to respond to God than we might think. You know, Matthew chapter 4 has always amazed me. Jesus simply gave a little command, or just gave a little uh, word to these guys. Uh, it says, and, and Jesus walking by the sea of Galilee saw two brothers, saw, uh, Peter uh, and Simon, his brother, casting a net to the sea for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left the net and followed him. Now think how easy that was. Now I'm not sure uh, how much they seen Jesus before that. It really doesn't say, but but think, Jesus simply says, come follow me, uh, I'll make you fit. And immediately, there's an immediate response, there's a conversion, there's a change of life, and they make a decision, a life-changing decision immediately. They left all, a little bit further, John uh, and James did the same thing, they left the family business, fathers in the boat. But that's how powerful the Word of God is. When you and I just simply speak a word, uh, uh, what doesn't make any sense? Why would you walk away from a business, uh, your family business, there, and come and follow Jesus? There's risk there. But that's the power of the Word of God when somebody is given uh, a command, come follow me. Listen, God loves you. God cares about you. God's got a plan. Listen, that has impact. People respond to the gospel of hope. Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishermen. In other words, God has a plan for your life. Uh, you know, most people are miserable in sin. They may dress it up. I'm happy. Yeah, man, can't have any better. Man, got my car, my money, but they're miserable. That's what brought us here, right? Sin couldn't satisfy. Sin dug the hole deeper. Amen. And I was talking to one of my neighbors that uh, just shattered the whole family. And I noticed he had a lot of activities. So I go over and talk to him. And one of their their son-in-law just committed suicide. They said, man, we don't understand. He had everything going. He's educated, uh, highly educated. He's got, uh, he's a, uh, got these degrees and involved in these other. We just don't understand it. Been in the family for eight years. Nobody's seen really this coming. They go home and he, he's killed himself. So it did open the door for me to minister, but, but that's people today. Marriages, lines, and shambles. Uh, people, are, people are living wrecked lives, and when they hear the Word of God, uh, God has a plan for you, God loves you, listen, they're going to listen. Uh, when I got witnessed to first, I was at a party, you heard it a few times, but I was at a party, the most likely guy to hear the Word of God to get saved, but I mean, the Word of God broke through my party, broke through my all my circumstances, I was desperate, I heard them words, and man, they hung on to my heart. See, the Word of God is the only thing it can save. You know, Nineveh was going to be destroyed. Their violence, their wickedness, their corruption, their serving 
the need of Mother God, uh, it came to a head. God said, I'm going to judge. Judgment is coming. Uh, the only thing, their only hope is they respond to the word of God. Think how important Jonah was now. He's the messenger. He's going to take the word of God into Nineveh. That is their only hope. Go and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Jesus said, wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many on it. Listen, this world's going to be destroyed. It's coming. And we can see it is getting closer by the day. Uh, does God have people, anyone that will uh, respond to the calling? Let me give you a few statistics here. Or things that's happening right now. The Biden administration, Walt Disney, Big Tech, the Teachers Union, the media are doing everything they can to destroy the biblical foundation of America. So let me give you a couple. The newest the Supreme Court nominee, uh, Miss Brown, I think Katinka, Katinka, if I say her first name right, she's asked a simple question uh, concerning gender, gender. Who is a woman? She said, I don't know. Now think about that. She's a Supreme Court nomination. Uh, she's sitting there, she's getting to... Uh, Asked questions by the House and the Senate, different uh, uh, senators and different things. Uh, the, uh, who is a woman? Now, that's simple, right? But because she's totally given in to the transgender movement, uh, the pangender movement, she said, I don't know. Now, here's a lady that doesn't know what a woman is, but she's going to uh, make decisions about the Constitution. That's scary. California Governor Newsom, Gavin Newsom, just signed a bill into law that gives a mother a right to destroy her baby after birth up to seven days and even up to one year without any consequences. If you don't like your baby, they, I've read the article, you can uh, starve him to death, you can drown him, whatever you want, no consequences. Now, it's got legislation against it, it's unconstitutional, we know that, but he signed it. Walt Disney announced their goal in movies is, and in the characters of movies to have 50% of characters of movies themselves played by the transgender uh, movement, the LGBTIQ movement. That's their goal. Within the next years, 50% of every character, uh, Woody, all these others, their goal is 50% of these characters, the kids' characters to be bisexual, pansexual, one of them. That's scary. The Biden administration just passed a bill that said your children at the age of 10 years old can get a sex change. Many public schools have what they call a transition closet or transition closet where your children can go in these closets uh, and put on the opposite says clothes uh, without any judgment. Violence in America is up 30% from last year. Shooting and homicides are common in many cities. Listen, the gospel is the only hope. The gospel is the only hope. Uh, judgment's coming. You can see this. Uh, I mean, uh, people doing stuff like this. I mean, this is unheard of. You can't even think this up. America needs the gospel. Listen, people are ready to receive the gospel.
Well, but will you and I be a Jonah and tell sinners uh, judgment is coming? You know, when I was in Zambia, I spent there four years, me and my family. And the president there is President Chaluba. And President Chaluba visited one of our, our churches, our, our mother church in Lasaka, Zambia. And see the way we preached, see the way the men were. They were disciples. They, uh, they were moral. They were godly men. And he said, listen, Will you disciple the men of Zambia? They said we're desperate for real men in Zambia because they had a horrible uh, problem with uh, sexual immorality, uh, young girls' lives being destroyed at 10, 11, 12 years old, violated by uh, other men. Would you teach our men to be disciples? I mean, his cry was, listen, uh, you're the only hope for Zambia. Now, we know it's the word of God, but he's seen it in us in our fellowship. And so uh, there in Zambia, they only have one channel on TV, one channel, Channel 7. And it was on, uh, I can't remember if it was on four or eight hours a day, but half of that was religious and half of it was news. And so they had no other stuff that come in. And so for two hours... Every day, uh, many times, our fellowship was on there preaching. So anyway, when MTV came in, it was a big thing in America. So they decided they're going to let it into Zambia uh, for, I mean, within uh, like two months. It changed the dress of all these young girls, changed the attitude. Uh, and the president came on that TV station and said, we're shutting the door that no more allowed. But what it did, just in two months of these young people. And again, the president, hey, would you teach our people the word of God? Look, lastly, staying with them. Staying with them. This is desperately needed today. We can't just pray with them and leave them to fend for themselves. They need guidance, direction. Uh, and they need people to help them live for God. Right? So Jonah's called to go, preach the gospel. There's more to that than just preaching. You know, when me and my wife got saved, Dennis and Tina Wright worked with us. Not just them, but the church. It was a small church at that time, about 20 people, uh, and they worked with us. They didn't just say, well, you got saved. Hope you make it. But they worked with us. They had us over. They they taught me how to be a man. Dennis Wright did taught my wife how to be a woman of God, how to be married, and they taught it. They stayed with us. You know, our text says, so the people of Nineveh believed God. Then God saw their works, that they turned uh, from the evil ways, and God relented from disaster, which he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Jonah chapter 4, though, is... Uh, it's just amazing to me in a, in a wrong way. Verse 1, but, don't, but, uh, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry, so he prayed to the Lord and said, O, o Lord, uh, uh, was, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarsha, for I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, no, uh, or one who relents from doing evil. Jonah is mad in his mind here. He's mad that the people he preached to have gotten saved. Now think about that. Uh, 
Uh, he's mad that the very people he's preaching to responded to God and got mad. I'm like, that don't even make sense. I'm a preacher. I mean, that's what we're, that's what we're hoping for, that people get saved and respond to the gospel. They give their life to Jesus. But Jonah is upset. He's so upset. God said, you have a right to be mad. He said, I have a right even to death. I have a right, God, to be mad because you saved them. Now, I thought about maybe Jonah was mad because now he's going to stay. Wasn't just come and preach and go, but now he has to stay with them and teach them the Word of God. Teach them how to say, uh, be a Christian. Teach them the principles of the Word of God and live for God. And I believe that's why he was mad. Now i got to stay with these people and help them make right decisions and live for God. You know, 30, 40 years ago in America, people knew their neighbors by name. They had meals together. People talked as they walked in and out of stores together. You know, I'm one of them neighbors that all my neighbors know me. Because I'm knocking on their doors, I'm talking to them because, listen, it opens doors. Uh, I was at two of my neighbors just talking to them and, hey, uh, you need help, you need to, uh, uh, you know, but just talking to them. You know, today people don't talk to people. Their 30, 40-year-olds have no friends. I'm reading a book now by Stephen Manfield. He was an old Navy still guy, and he's talking about his training. He's talking about he's overseas in Saudi Arabia, and he's training men. These are American men. They're, tra- they're SEALs. They're in training. They're going to do some operations, and he's their trainer. He simply asked him a question one day. He goes, uh, how many here have friends? Because the, the book, the chapter is on relationship, and you, know, uh, you can be this big bad guy who knows all the weapons, but do you have any friends? He said almost everyone dropped their heads. They had no friends. They had training partners. They had people they can uh, rely on in combat, but they had no friends. Today, people's best friend is someone on the computer they've never even seen in person. Listen, if we're going to have revival here, see people save, see the church grow to two or three hundred, we have to be people that are going to be somebody's friend. When somebody comes to church, comes out of a lifestyle of sin, they're, they're coming out of old friends, they're coming out of an old relationship, they need some new friends quick. When I got saved, that's what impressed me and my wife so much. Uh, we came into a new family, new friends. I didn't need more running buddies anymore that I drank with. I got high with. I didn't need that anymore. I have some friends now that I can uh, confide in that can help me. I had friends. You know, Acts chapter 2. So continuing daily, if one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, it tells me there's friendship. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God. Their fellowships are godly, praising God and have favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church day. The church grew out because friendship. The church grew because there's friendships in the church. Uh, uh, I'm surprised, maybe even here. You've been coming five or six years, you don't even have a friend. You have acquaintance, hey, how you doing? Good, but you don't have a friend. Listen, you need friends. 
People come in, they need a friend. You can't just sit there and ignore people. Well, they'll work with them. Well, they probably won't. Jonah's mad. Think about that. Mad because he got to stay with them. He's not mad, I don't think, so much they got responded to the Word of God, but he's mad because now he's got to stay with them and help them live for God. He's got to spend his own life now. You know, when I got first when I first got saved, there's you know, it's only about twenty people in the church, but we were busy every night. If they wouldn't have fellowship, they were they were there where we were. I mean, we were we were fellowships every night. We developed things to do. We're twenty years old, we're playing hide and seek. Don't tell nobody. <laughs> but it was just for fellowship. You know, trying to you know what you do to lock new converts in, you know. And I was a new convert. They, hey, you want to do it? Yeah, yeah, let's do it, man. It's better than going out drinking and fighting and getting in trouble. But they were friends. Call me up. How you doing? Why don't you come over? Let's do something together. You know, truth that much of the joy in Christianity comes out of friendship. Matthew 25, the result of laboring together, one was increase. Remember the guy who had received five and two? They went out and labor, kind of gives us almost a mindset they were laboring together. And they profited by their labors. One gained five, the other gained two. Then Jesus said, enter into the joy of salvation. They go together. Listen, when you have friends in the church, somebody to run with, somebody to serve with, there's joy in that. There's joy. You know, joy doesn't come by money. Joy doesn't come by where you live and how you live, but it comes by relationship. You know how strange it would be if you went to the hospital, had surgery, but no, had no nurse or doctor come and see you afterwards. You know, that'd be strange. You go in and say you get your kidney taken out. Uh, you go through, you're in the recovery room and you look around like no nurse, no doctor ever gonna come. <laughs> you know, a church is a hospital. They come in and get saved, but there's nobody to follow up. Nobody to come and check on them. They've gotten saved. I mean, everything's been changed. Their minds, their desires, their life, everything's been changed. They need a nurse. They need somebody to come by and say, hey, are you okay? Let me bandage, let me help you here. Listen, if we're going to be real Christians, we're going to have to show mercy. Jonah went to Nineveh. He didn't just call and say, uh, hey, are you okay? But Jonah went and demonstrated God's love. You know, phone calls and texts are okay sometimes, but they're not like spending time with people. You know, uh, a text, hey, how you doing, is not, you know, with a little emoji there, whatever. It's not like saying, hey, let's have lunch together. It doesn't mean the same. Yeah, you can do that every once in a while, just... Uh, just you're going to try to catch up a little bit, but listen, there's nothing like time spent together. I remember every Saturday morning in my house growing up, my, we always had a house full. Every Saturday, my mom would cook. You know, my mom, she likes to cook anyway. But, I mean, my dad uh, was a biker at one time, so all of his bikers would be there on, on, on Saturday mornings. And so then my dad joined the police department. Uh, good combination, right? So now all the police are there every Saturday morning. But that was our house. 
We grew up like that, learning how to talk to one another, how to laugh with one another, how to uh, work through things with one another. Uh, there was friendship there. I remember my dad and mom got in trouble a few times just in life, and, but their friends were there. Listen, are you anybody's friend in church? Can they call you your friend? That means something. You need a friend. God didn't design His church just to come and hear the Word and go home. He designed it for friendship. The book of Acts is powerful. Again, because they ate their food together. They praised God. They had their, their, their uh, I mean, it was spiritual. Not every time. You, know, you don't have to make every fellowship. Okay, let's, let's study the book of John. <laughs> Sometimes, hey, just go play basketball. Come and play some cards. Uh, but it's being together. People need friends. You know, Pastor Howard has a list of people that need to be seen. They need a friend. Listen, these new converts don't get a, don't get a friend. they got old friends. I want to challenge you to be a friend to somebody. I was out with a couple yesterday just because I had a friendship. I said, hey, let's just get together and do something, man. And I had breakfast uh, and friendship. They say, thank you, Pastor, for that. Are you, are you anybody's friend? Listen, I can bet, I'm not betting, but it's just a term. I bet that most of you just sit at home at night, look at your phone, the computer screen, and spend hours doing nothing. Or if you've got TV, you're watching TV, watching movies, Right? All right? Raise your hand. No. That's probably what 90% of you do every night. Listen, why don't you invite somebody over and have fellowship? Ain't nothing wrong with watching something good, being on a computer when you need to, but listen, don't let that be your life. Do you have a friend and will you be a friend? Because this church grows, it's going to grow from friendship. So we're not just to be here for ourselves. Jesus says in Mark, or John 4, 35, and read again, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they're already white, ready for harvest. He's given us a thought about people here. Listen, people are ready to hear the word. They're ready to be harvested in. Uh, I've worked, I grew up on a farm, and one thing about a farm, when you harvest it in, man, you just can't leave it there. You've got to take care of it. You've got to store it. You've got to provide proper a place for that or you're going to lose it. Luke 4, or 14, one more time. Do you go into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. That's a Jonah or Nineveh call. Not just bring him in, but now take care of him. That's what Jonah didn't want to do. Don't be a Jonah. Don't say, I ain't getting my hands dirty. You know, you work with people, it's messy, isn't it? Begin to see each other's flaws. Begin to see each other's house that ain't perfect all the time. Who cares? Who cares your house ain't clean all the time? We'll help you clean it. Be a friend. Let's, let's bow our heads.